Welcome to Understanding the Law. Your host for the program is Peter Lamont. Mr. Lamont is a business and personal law attorney and the principal of the law offices of Peter J. Lamont. The firm has offices in New Jersey, New York, Colorado, Puerto Rico, and affiliated offices throughout the country. Understanding the Law is a weekly radio broadcast discussing a variety of legal topics that affect our listeners. Please note that this broadcast does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship with any of our listeners. As always, we welcome calls from our listeners. If you wish to discuss any of today's topics, please call our switchboard at 347-855-8831. And now, your host, Peter Lamont. Good morning and welcome to episode 67 Today we're going to be talking about the pros and cons of decriminalization of prostitution. Uh, before we get into the topic, I want to remind everybody to uh, make sure you give us your feedback. You know, we do this show weekly. We've been increasing uh, our episodes. We now have a Monday show, and uh, we really value your feedback. We do this for you uh, as a service to help you understand the law in a way that makes sense to you. And your comments and feedback are always uh, very welcome. Uh, we want to make sure that we're providing you with the content that you find interesting, and we only know that if you uh, comment on the broadcasts, videos, and whatever. Uh, I also want to remind you, make sure you check us out on Facebook and Twitter. You can communicate with us there. We also put up videos after the uh, radio show airs, and you can check out the video broadcast or video portion, and then leave comments in the section on our YouTube channel. We're easily accessible across the web, and I encourage you to go there and uh, you know, check us out and uh, join the conversation. It's about you, too, and we're going to need some conversation for today's topic. Um, we have planned a minority rights advocate who is supposedly going to call into the show. As of right now, we haven't uh, received her. I think this might be her, so let me check. I'm going to bring her on the line. Hi, is this Elizabeth? Yes, this is she. How are you? Good, how are you? Good, thanks. All right, so with us we have Elizabeth Fernandez-Kimmel, and she is a minority rights advocate. And Elizabeth, I was just getting into the topic, explaining to people um, what we're going to be talking about today and inviting people to call in if they want to discuss this topic. Let me just give out that call-in number one more time. It's 347 855 and feel free to call in and join this conversation. So, Elizabeth, I want to talk a little bit about um, your work as a minority rights advocate. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means? Okay, well, I'm going to have to start off uh, by scolding you and your show's producers um, for not having brought on an actual uh, sex worker onto the show to talk about this topic. Um, I feel obligated to scold you for that. Um, I don't like being scolded, by the way. <laughs> Good. We did um, try, it, and it, uh, unfortunately, people don't want to uh, want to speak out about this, at least not on this show. And I want to talk to you about that later on as, as to I thought this would be a welcome opportunity for people engaged in, in the sex profession to come on and voice their opinions and explain um, you know, how they feel about it. But I was surprised that nobody took us up on the offer. We, we reached out to a number of people, all who have came, come back and said, you know, we're not interested. 
So I think you're going to have to take back your scolding a little bit because I did try. I should get an A for effort, but okay. continue on. Well, try harder next time. That's how I'll do okay. that. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you. So go ahead. Okay. So um, I uh, in my work is mostly uh, focused in D.C. Most recently, I have been a volunteer for a wonderful organization here in D.C. called HIPS. Um, and they do uh, outreach and direct services and advocacy um, and uh, public health outreach uh, for the local um, street-based sex worker population and uh, intravenous drug users. Okay. Um, and I've been a volunteer with them since 2007. Uh, currently, they just formed a legal working group, um, and I'm participating in that as well. And okay. uh, I've I was part of the effort to oppose a 2011 bill introduced here in D.C. Council um, that aimed to make a mechanism called the Prostitution-Free Zone, which is a measure that lasts for 21 days, as it is currently. Um, there was a bill to try to make these zones permanent in 2011, and I was part of the effort to oppose that. All right. um, and most now, recently in DC Council, we we thought we there is currently a bill that looks like it's going to pass, um, that's going to get rid of these prostitution-free zones altogether. Okay. Now let me ask you before we get into more specifics about what you're doing and and your advocacy. We're talking about prostitution. That's the the term that the majority of people use. I understand that people in the industry refer to it as a sex worker versus prostitute or hooker. Um, but unfortunately, that's the, the way that the, the common man refers to the profession, you know, world's oldest profession and all the cliches. Now, prostitution is something that's been around for centuries. It's not something new, something that's been around. Um, and, and my recollection and my understanding of the laws in this country concerning prostitution, you know, it is back in the 1800s when laws were put in place that essentially stopped the transfer of sex workers from state to state or across state lines, that sort of thing, and ultimately evolved into what we have today. And um, where we are right now is that the only state that I'm aware of, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, the only state that I'm aware of that has areas of their state where prostitution is legalized is in certain counties in Nevada. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. And we're talking about prostitution or, or sex work, but there are different levels. And you mentioned a few minutes ago uh, street prostitution, street sex worker. So my understanding is that there's, you've got the brothel worker, right, someone who works in a, an establishment. You've got the person that walks the street, um, and then you've got out out call-out services or, or, or what have you. Now, your advocacy, you are, you are, are, are trying to, uh, to do what? To gain rights because you're looking at this as, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so stop me. Um, you're looking at this as not just a, a, a right to, to be a sex worker, but a right, civil rights, human rights. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Now, um, you... What, do you distinguish between the, the, the different levels, I, I don't know how else to say that, or the different um, types of prostitution? 
as far as your advocacy goes? As far as my advocacy goes, no. And the reason for that is that uh, laws that currently criminalize prostitution, and I'll use prostitution because that's what the law calls it, um, the laws that criminalize prostitution tend to affect uh, the most marginalized populations. So generally, uh, an indoor-based escort doing in-calls or out-calls let's say in calls, is at a much lower risk of um, being apprehended by the law than somebody who's based on the street. Um, And people that work um, based on the street tend to be lower income. uh, More often than not, they are uh, people of color. Um, Trans women also get caught in the mix quite often and are most affected by uh, laws that criminalize prostitution. So I don't make a distinction. Okay. Now, in my preparation for the show, um, and and as I mentioned earlier, we did reach out to people. And some of the comments, although the people did not want to appear on the show, some of the comments I received were things like, um, people think that if I am a prostitute, it is because I am a drug user or I have uh, no home. I'm homeless. But I choose this because I make more money, I have more freedom, I view this as a business, and this is what I want to do. And I think that a lot of people would be surprised to hear from someone in the profession that this is their choice, that they want to do this. Um, Tell me about your experience as an advocate dealing with sex workers. Do you find that the people engaged in the profession want to be doing what they're doing? I mean, do you feel that this is... Um, a choice that they're making, or do you think that 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 varies depending upon level of sex workers, street prostitution versus um, an establishment? Well, you bring up an excellent point. I, uh, not only in my advocacy, but in my personal life, I have, I'm friends with a number of current and former sex workers. Um, And I would put it this way, Uh, people with fewer advantages, have a narrower amount of choices that they can that they have available to them as far as um, providing sustenance for themselves and their families. Um, and so even even with somebody that has all you know somebody that has degrees, university degrees, advanced degrees, um, that chooses uh, sex work, they're still choosing from a limited number of options that's available to them. They're more numerous than somebody who perhaps doesn't have a high school diploma, for example. Um, but it's not—it's not as though the sky's the limit and they chose sex work. It's work, basically. Right. Um, now, and what about what about? I'm sorry to cut you off, but what about those people who have degrees, who've actually gone to college and they've chosen this? I mean, I, I actually—I remember going to college with an individual. Um, who was engaged in in the profession, and that's how she put herself through college. What about those people that have a higher education? Do you come across a lot of them who say, this is the profession that I've I've chosen? Well, uh, it's interesting. There's an article that came out recently, uh, a blog that I believe I sent you a link to, uh, titsandsass.com. It's a blog by and for sex workers. Um, and uh, there's a post recently by uh, a number of sex workers, I believe that they spoke with four or five of them, 
they all have um, advanced degrees, and they all chose to remain in sex work. Um, mostly the reason that they cite is money. They were making a lot more money in sex work than they were in academia, which is where all of them had tried to or successfully um, participated in. Um, and they just felt that the hours were better, that they weren't really making a difference in academia, that they found it to be entrenched and anti-intellectual, uh, and they just were happier and making more money in sex work. So that's what they chose to do. Now, you know, there's a number. This shows about pros and cons, and I want to start getting into that in a second, but there's a number of um, obvious objections to prostitution in general. Okay, so the ones that I'm familiar with, and I'm sure you'll have uh, additionals that I've forgotten, uh, obviously there's the moral objection, you know, that this is an immoral uh, profession, it's, it shouldn't be considered a profession, these are immoral acts, and so uh, there's, there's a morality issue. There's also the issue of, of health and spreading disease. Um, I mean, my understanding is back in, in uh, um, early French history, one of the reasons why prostitution was banned for portions of time was due to the syphilis outbreak. So there's the health issue, and um, then there's the issue of safety uh, for women, women being raped and abused. So, I mean, those are the three main things that I see with respect to objections to prostitution um, right off the bat. Do you have others that you've encountered? Uh, honestly, no. I cannot see a legitimate con uh, to having decriminalized prostitution. And the three that you mentioned, I can address each one of those. Uh, first, there's the moral objection uh, that it's immoral and therefore it should be illegal. Uh, I would offer that in 2004 with Lawrence v. Texas, um, the Supreme Court of the United States held that morality is not a legitimate basis for the government to intrude in the private affairs of consenting adults. Uh, Lawrence has not been applied successfully to, as a challenge to um, any state prostitution statutes, and the main reason for that is that state courts have decided not to apply it um, without any legal analysis, um, and it's because of one sentence in there uh, that Justice Kennedy put in uh, where he says, this is not about prostitution, and therefore state right. courts take that sentence in isolation and decide the entire case does not apply, or that holding does not apply. Um, and I would also offer, as far as a moral objection, and this goes to the other two, uh, the health, the public health issue, and the women's safety issue. Uh, recently, the World Health Organization, the Lancet um, Medical, Medical Research Journal, uh, Human Rights Watch, uh, the United Nations, uh, Amnesty International, and just more and more organizations, one by one, are coming out with their findings that um, criminalizing prostitution actually puts women in danger. It makes it more difficult for them to keep themselves safe, not just from disease, um, but from violence and coercion at the hands of law enforcement, at the hands of their clients. And so I think if you want to talk about the morality thing, and we can't, it's, the evidence is getting harder to ignore that criminalizing prostitution actually puts women in more danger or puts sex workers generally in more danger, um, not just for their physical safety, but 
um, with regard to keeping themselves safe from disease, uh, it's it, it's the immoral thing to do to criminalize a person's occupation or the means by which they make a living. Right. Now, you know, you're going to always have, regardless of... Um, the separation of church and state. You're always going to have those people who believe that it's just so immoral that it is, it's not a profession. It's not something that you choose. And uh, I, I think that, you know, playing devil's advocate, you do have to separate the idea of law and then morality. Now, it, it's harder if you go back to the beginnings of this country because many of the laws, many of the constitutional provisions that we have are based off of uh, what at the time they believed to be moral principles. So let me ask you, based upon the, the fact that, you know, people are going to argue with me, but I don't, I don't see that you can truly separate church and state. You've got the Hobby Lobby ruling uh, that happened a few weeks ago concerning, you know, a company's ability to not cover contraception if it's a, a closely held company because of religious objection. Uh, you've got dollar bills with In God We Trust. So I think that to take morality completely out of the equation will never happen. Do you think that the morality argument is against prostitution, is as strong as the other arguments, or do you think that's the weakest argument? Uh well, it's it's hard for me to to quantify which is the weaker or the stronger argument because you can't take public opinion out of the equation. And as long as sex workers are unable to be out in society as sex workers, uh, they're not. Most people are going to know a sex worker, and they never found out about it. Right. Um, it's it, as, as so long as people can't humanize sex workers because it is criminal and you know the repercussions are tremendous, not just socially but legally. Uh, it's going to be really hard for people to understand that sex workers are also mothers, they're students, uh, they're people you know with issues uh, that they decided to turn to sex work in order to address them, and it's. We're going to have this this imaginary that was like what we imagine prostitutes to be, which is as the, the people that you talked to uh, about coming on the show said, um, people are automatically going to assume that they're disease vectors, or that they're drug users, or that they're mentally ill, um, or that they're otherwise unable to do anything else, or that there's something inherently wrong with them um, that they chose to do this for for money. Mm-hmm. So, it's, yeah, it's, you're not going to be able to take morality out of it as long as people can't put a faith and a life to um, the profession. Right. You know, what about the fact that society has sort of given us the image of a prostitute? I mean, when you look at um, television programs or cartoons or animated, you know, adult animated uh, uh, shows on television – I mean, you, you have a sort of stereotypical prostitute that is portrayed. You've got the woman walking the street, high heels, short skirt. I mean, you, you, you've got a picture of what a prostitute is. I say prostitute, and when people hear that word, 
there's automatically something that's generated in their head that says, oh, here's what you're talking about. How do you get away from that image that's been handed to people? How do you, how do you humanize? How do you bring that connection to the fact that it's a mom, it's, um, you know, a, a girl that went to college, it's somebody who has intelligence, it's somebody that made this choice. With what we have been fed over the years and hundreds of years, how do you, how do you make that connection to the, human, uh, hum, or the personalization, the humanizing of, of prostitution? Well, I think that's similar to what uh, the gay rights movement has achieved thus far, which is uh, throughout the decades since Stonewall, more and more individuals have come out to their family and their friends on their own terms um, in, at a moment of their lives where they felt safe uh, coming out to their family and friends. Uh, they reached a critical mass where everybody knows somebody who's gay and they know that they're not this, you know, child-raping monster that uh, the moralists have made them out to be. And so uh, it is up to sex workers to tell their stories in their own words and continue to tell their stories um, that I hope someday we'll see the day when the word whore isn't the worst thing that you could call a woman. But it's going to take a really long time for that to happen. Right. Right. Now, do you see that happening, you know, in your lifetime? I, you know, I, I don't know. I, it, it, yes, I do. I do see it happening. I see it happening late in my life. These past few years, um, in my perception and the perception of others, um, have we? It feels like there's the beginnings of a sea change mm. going on. Um, more and more people, more and more civilians, um, as non as sex workers like to call non sex workers, more and more civilians um, are adopting the use of the word uh, sex worker, which is a political term. Um, more and more people are are entertaining this idea of, of decriminalization. Uh, the, it's in the public debate in a number of countries. Uh, so I don't think it's impossible. And, you know, let's talk about the safety issue now with respect to, to health, uh, not, not the safety of, of women or, or men or transgender who are involved in, in sex work, but the health of the general public, because there is the belief that uh, and you look back at the laws and you you can see clearly that one of the reasons for uh, banning prostitution throughout the world has been the spread of disease to curb the spread of disease. So now we're talking about HIV and other sexually transmitted diseases. There's an argument that says legalizing prostitution protects people. It protects this you know or or can quell the spread of AIDS and other sexually transmitted diseases. But the flip side, the con of that argument is that even if you imposed mandatory um, disease testing, HIV testing, and what have you, it's going to take a period of four to eight, sometimes 12 weeks to determine whether or not someone is, in fact, infected. And in that time period, they could infect hundreds of other people. So you've got the one side that says, no, no, no. It's going to stop the spread of sexually transmitted diseases and HIV. And the other one says, no, it's not. It's going to make it worse or have no effect. How do you, how do you, uh, what's your take on those two arguments? Well, uh, I would start off by saying that I don't think that mandatory testing uh, 
is necessary. I think that mandatory testing of sex workers actually makes a lot of assumptions a lot of assumptions about how sex workers go about. Um, keep in mind that this is their livelihood, and they have a tremendous stake in keeping themselves safe. And so it, when you mentioned the, the time period that it takes for a test result, for example, are we talking about HIV? So we can just choose HIV yeah. for yeah. the sake of this argument. Um, that it will take four to eight weeks for a result to come up. Uh, and in that time, uh, hundreds of people could get infected. Uh, you're making assumptions about how that sex worker uh, goes about their safety. Um, and you're also omitting the fact that there's a number of factors that affect transmissibility, um, one of them being a person's viral load. Um, and currently, there have been, uh, recently there have been breakthroughs um, in treatment of HIV to where a person's viral load is nearly indetectable, which effectively means that they, the, the rate of transmission or the likelihood of transmission is very, very low. Um, so I don't see how hundreds of people will be potentially infected you know, while a person is waiting for their test results because it ignores barrier protection and it ignores a person's uh, viral load at that time. Well, you know, there, oh. there, I understand what you're saying, but there's clearly, if you have someone who is engaging in sexual activity with multiple people, um, and, and perhaps it's the level of sex worker that we're talking about, because I have seen documentaries about street sex workers who will, for example, not use protection if uh, the client pays more money, that sort of thing. So is there a distinction between the street sex worker and other sex workers? Because, I mean, you have to agree that there is the, uh, you said it earlier, people who are street sex workers are generally in a lower socioeconomic um, division of, of the world. They're less educated or can be less educated and money might be more of an issue as opposed to those people who have a significant or substantial level of education. Is there a greater transmission risk then with street sex workers? I wouldn't necessarily think so. Um, I assume that you are correct, that there are uh, street-based sex workers who have more of an incentive, is what I'm hearing you say, to mm -hmm. make, make a choice, hastily make a choice, um, to not use barrier protection if they're offered more money. Um, I actually knew an indoor escort who would take more money um, in exchange for not using barrier protection. So I don't think that it's limited to street-based sex workers. But doesn't I, that... I th and, and, and you have to also keep in mind, you have to keep in mind that every time you engage in sexual activity with someone, whether you're a sex worker or a civilian, you are assuming a risk mm -hmm. of getting something, depending on, you know, a number of factors. But you, you can't just assume that every person that you have sexual contact with um, is, is completely safe. You're so assuming I understand a, a that. certain amount of risk. So, I mean, these are private choices made by private individuals. Um, well... 
I understand that, and I understand that as as a civilian, as we're calling you know non-sex workers, you could have sex with one person and end up um, contracting HIV, and and that was one shot. But if you play the odds, statistically, someone who has had more partners is at greater risk of exposure just due to the number of people. And and I don't know how you know you get around that statistical argument, but if prostitution was legalized, you wouldn't be in favor of mandatory testing, mm-hmm. and why not? Uh, because I think, again, you're making a lot of assumptions about uh, sex workers. You are assuming that they are disease vectors. And when you say that statistically, there would be a higher likelihood that they have a infectious disease that's transmissible. Um, you're ignoring the fact that they're having sexual contact with more people professionally. They're professional. This is their livelihood, and they have a greater interest than a civilian in making sure that they stay safe. And I would also offer that a street-based sex worker, I don't think necessarily their, their incentive to, to take risks, bigger risks, is necessarily based on economic need. I think that that is more a direct result of the fact that they're constantly looking over their shoulder um, to see if law enforcement is, you know, about to descend on them. Um, it also has to do with the fact that there's still a majority of jurisdictions out there that use um, the possession of more than a certain number of condoms as evidence of engaging in prostitution or related activities. And so people are just trying not to get busted. And I think that incentivizes people on the street to make riskier choices, more so than, you know, dire economic straits. But that, that, that's even more worrisome than, than to me, because we're talking about individuals who don't go up to a prostitute and say, hey, by the way, I might have HIV. You're talking about somebody that could put the sex worker at risk by not obviously telling them that they have HIV. And if uh, and I've read the articles on, on the condom as evidence. If you're carrying more than an X amount of condoms, uh, police are going to assume that you're a sex worker. Um, and if that is being used as evidence, so I guess this supports the argument that decriminalization of prostitution would keep women safer. Um, because if you eliminate the condom issue and you say, all right, it doesn't make a difference how many you have because, you know, it, it, it's legalized. Uh, then would more people use condoms? Because the way that I'm hearing you say that there's a greater likelihood that someone will not use protection simply because having condoms on their person may lead law enforcement to believe that they're a prostitute. Correct. So on the flip side of transmission of HIV and other diseases, your argument primarily is that by legalizing it, People will not be afraid of being arrested. People will not be afraid to use protection. And the majority of them will, in fact, insist that protection is used, thereby decreasing the risk of infection. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And I think that people would feel more comfortable spending a little more time sussing out the client, the potential client, and seeing whether they feel safe with this person. Because you can't ignore uh, the, the sexual assault factor in 
sexually transmissible diseases. In D.C., uh, that's one of the biggest um, reasons for transmission of HIV in women, in low-income women in the D.C. population, is sexual assault. Um, whether it's in the milieu of sex work or not is not something that was that has been looked at, but you still can't take that out of the picture that of sex worker safety um, in that regard, as far as screening the client, feeling safe with the client, um, has a part to play in all this. Well, before we get into physical safety, let me let me ask you this: Doesn't it make sense? to, let's assume you legalize prostitution, doesn't it make sense to have categories of legalized activity? So, for example, you would assume, and again, it is an assumption, but for argument's sake, assume that a sex worker working at a a facility, I don't know what else you'd call them, a brothel facility, um, where there are rules, where they are essentially employees, because, again, now we're living in a, a world where it's legalized. Wouldn't you need to still criminalize street prostitution? Because aren't you protecting those sex workers engaged in legitimate activities? You know, if you allow street prostitution to continue, you've got all those inherent risks that we did talk about, and wouldn't that offset the rights or impact the rights of those individuals working at organized facilities where you would have to assume that Things are managed properly because if you want to take prostitution as a business, then you know the, the old stereotypical madam who runs a brothel would become an employer, a manager, and would manage the facility and make it a legitimate business enterprise that way. Doesn't the fact – I mean, look, it's like you go to a concert and you buy a shirt from the vendor inside the arena and then you've got the guy selling it outside you know, the back of his car. So the selling shirts is fine, that's legal, but selling it out of the back of your car is not because you're impacting the rights of those individuals who are legally there permitted to sell the shirts. Isn't it the same thing with street prostitution versus managed prostitution? Okay, what I'm hearing you say is that the reason that it is unlawful to sell T-shirts outside of the venue is to protect the rights of those who are legitimately selling t-shirts inside the venue correct they have a permit to do and so. so and so and so <laughs> if you if you if you transfer that to the sex work argument then the reason that you are making it unlawful to sex work on outside of a brothel is to protect the rights of those who are in the brothel is that what i'm hearing you say yeah because you would have to assume that if you're in a brothel it is a managed organization there is a boss, there is a supervisor, there is management in place. There are rules, there are guidelines, there are ways that you deal with, with clients and customers. It's a business. That's how businesses are run versus the person who just is on the street. And because there are more risks, in my opinion, with street prostitution than with organized prostitution, shouldn't there be, assuming that it's legalized, I mean, because I can almost buy the argument, legalize prostitution if you are within a managed facility, but you still have to worry about the person that's not permitted to do so walking on the street. Do you, do you distinguish between that? I don't. 
And the reason for that is that even in legal um, sexual labor, let's take a strip club as an example. Even in a strip club, uh, the fact that it's supervised, you're making assumptions about the, the need to keep these unruly people under control. Um, it, it, there's a ton of evidence that managerial practices and hiring practices um, in strip clubs, for example, are quite racist. Um, they discriminate based on a number of things, um, your uh, gender identity being one of them. And I think that you're going to end up leaving a lot of people out. But those people are protected giving by, them the option by to, to to exercise their choice of engaging in sex work, whether it's for the short or the long term. Um, I think that you're you're so marginalizing a lot of people. And I'm all about the informal economy. You know, I I support the informal economy because it, the, the informal economy is how a lot of marginalized people um, are able to survive. So no, I don't you take, take your that strip club. Take your strip club example for a second, though. If I'm discriminated against on the basis of my race, religion, creed, uh, sexual orientation, I have I have laws that protect me. I can sue employer for discriminatory, you know, termination or refusing to hire me based upon discriminatory reasons. I'm I'm protected because it is. And I hate to use the word legitimate because it's got other connotations, but it's a legitimate profession. I'm going in there. I'm, I've got rights to protect me. If you legitimize and legalize prostitution, don't the sex workers gain more legal support and control? Can't they then rely on those same laws that protect their employment you know, in McDonald's or Walmart or Target or wherever and say, well, you can't discriminate against me? Don't they have more rights? Only the ones that are accepted and are able to work in the legitimate businesses. So, okay, what is the likelihood of a marginalized person uh, who was discriminated against either hiring or or employment um, based on, let's say, their gender identity? What legal recourse, what, what's the likelihood that they're, one, going to find the time um, and the money to hire a lawyer that'll take their case, and what is the likelihood of them prevailing? I mean, you're putting a lot of barriers to this legal recourse on a population that is likely not to have the means or the will to want to seek legal redress. Well, I think, so I it, think though... It, it sounds good in theory, but I don't think it plays out to, you know, everybody, you know being treated fairly or eventually getting, you know, being made whole. I don't think it does. I think it brings legitimacy to it because, you know what, you know, first of all, with uh, discrimination claims, the majority of states and the federal law provides for the recovery of attorney's fees. So when you say what attorney would take the case because of, of a money issue from the client, um, most attorneys would take civil rights and employment discrimination cases because there's statutes in place that provide for payment of attorney's fees directly to the attorney. So in theory, if I recover a dollar for someone who has been discriminated against and my attorney's fees are $10,000 and I prevail, the other side's paying my fees. 
So that would be incentive for the attorney to take it. Um, as far as the time and, and that sort of thing, you know, I, I think that we can see people spill coffee on themselves and they find the time to go contact a lawyer and say, uh, I want to see if I can sue. People trip over their own two feet and see who they can sue. So I don't know that that makes sense. I mean, if you want to legalize it, why not legalize it and give people the same protections? Make it the same type of employment situation as you would anywhere else. But then you have to eliminate those people that that still want to operate outside of the law. And I would see that as street sex workers. But you disagree with that. Is that right? Yeah, how many how many jurisdictions have protections for uh, transgender people? Well, it's it's in the uh, New Jersey State Constitution. <laughs> you know, it's there, it's there, it's a developing issue, but it's there. So okay, you named one. Uh, DC actually has a fairly robustly written um, Human Rights Act, so that's two. Two. Well, I can't say that I know the law on <laughs> transgender in every state, but I would venture to say that every state has – New York has a statute that would allow for protection of transgender. You know, the statute doesn't have to say we protect transgender. It says sexual orientation, et cetera, et cetera. So gender, I don't gender know – Gender identity and expression, yeah. I don't know that you can say, oh, it's only two, just because I can't rattle off all 50 of them. But I think that, <laughs> you know, the idea is – if you want to make it legal, look, take, for example, Colorado. They legalize marijuana. The last stats in is that crime rates in marijuana because of drug-related crimes are down 14.6% because they legalized marijuana. But they didn't just legalize it and say, all right, free-for-all. They set up stores. They made rules. They're generating a tremendous amount of revenue because, you know, and whether you are a fan of legalized marijuana or not, Mm -hmm. there's no disputing the fact that because it's an organized system and now a real product the same way toilet paper is, that, you know, now you can look and you can say, oh, look, the crime rate's down. So why not do that same thing with prostitution? You know, I think that the regulatory scheme that would come about – from what I'm hearing you call uh, legal, where I'm more, I lean toward decriminalization altogether. Um, You know, those are, the regulatory scheme is something that uh, I think is a a later debate. I think that the sex worker community, the sex workers' rights community um, has bigger fish to fry right now. Um, and, And so, yeah, I, I I hear I hear you I hear the argument that you know it should be legal and then you should tax and regulate it, right? Um, I don't think that should be the reason to make it legal. Individuals is the reason why it should be decriminalized, not because right, the now, state is going to tax and regulate. All right, now let's go into that because the the con is that decriminalizing prostitution does not protect women. There's, you know, there's nothing to protect against rape and abuse and that sort of thing. So what's your argument on the flip side that that would, you know, say, hey, it's, it would be safer for women? What's, what's that, that, that uh, viewpoint? Well, um, there are a large number of 
sex workers who have described um, the abuse that they've experienced at the hands of law enforcement, for example. And uh, I did send you a link to a 2012 report from the state of Ohio attorney general that shows that law enforcement was the biggest procurer of uh, sexual services as well as the biggest perpetrator of sexual assault on persons who had been trafficked in the sex industry. Uh, so I, I, I let's, let's start there. Let's start with the many stories that come out of uh, law enforcement blackmailing people, you know, exchanging, uh, coercing sexual labor out of an individual um, in exchange for not getting arrested, for example. Okay. Um, All right, so, so that. yes, that's there. But what about the safety of, of the sex worker themselves? Are they more safe if it is decriminalized, or are they less safe, or, or is there no change? Well, they're absolutely safer if, if, if they're not criminalized, because then they would be able to call the police. Uh, and avail themselves of the protections of law. Exactly. Which is the same thing that would happen if you made it a legalized business and put in place guidelines with respect to how they would operate. Well, no, because then if you have somebody that's based on the street, they're not going to have the same uh, legal recourse. So <clears throat> explain the, the pro side of this. So you decriminalize. And now if there is a rape, if there is an assault, they can go to the police without fear of being arrested. Now, I did read in one of the articles that you sent over that the majority of police will, I think it was something you sent over, uh, the majority of police will say, well, what did you expect? What did you expect to have happen? Look what you're doing. So there's no sympathy for them. But if right, you and even prosecutors it, will say, I don't see how you could possibly rape a prostitute. Like they're seen as unrapeable somehow, right. as though... They don't, they, they don't have the ability to choose um, who they're going to engage with. So, so the, the decriminalizing element of this gives them the ability to go to the police. Does it do anything else? Does it protect them in another way other than having the recourse of going to law enforcement and saying, here's what happened? But, you know, I, I have a question about that before. Let me interrupt myself. Um, if you have someone, and this is completely hypothetical, but I just want to see what your thoughts are on this. You have somebody that you agree to engage in sexual activity with, and for whatever reason, they don't pay you, there's a problem, the money's not real, whatever. I, I can't even think of a scenario that doesn't sound like a bad movie. Um, but then, or they go beyond the bounds of what the, the sex worker had agreed to do. How do you go and, and press charges against this person? Because unless there's a way of getting their name, address, phone number, that sort of thing, how, how would you do that? I'm just curious as to what you would, would say. How would you do that? Well, I think uh, just taking it down to a, a, a less hypothetical level, uh, there was the case, um, I believe it was, it was in 2012, of a man named Ezekiel Gilbert in San Antonio, Texas, who shot and killed and was acquitted of murder um, when he called a young lady over to his house. Uh, we'll never know what actually happened uh, whenever they were seen arguing um, by her driver who was sitting outside waiting for her. Um, but uh, because he assumed that 
she was going to do certain things that it turns out she hadn't agreed to do with him. Um, he was able to use a law in Texas that allows you to uh, use deadly force on somebody if you're defending property, which in this case, um, the money that he gave her was the property that he was defending. So he was acquitted of shooting her dead. So there's there's that. The law isn't working against sex workers, for right. starters. Now, now I mean the your the scenario that you're describing where somebody's trying to sue to recover um, money that was owed to them, and how hard how difficult that would be to to pursue in court, sounds to me a lot like pursuing gender based or race-based discrimination or uh, gender expression-based discrimination in hiring um, or in employment management. So, Well, I, well I, my, my question is more about if, if the law, if you believe that legalizing prostitution gives people access to the police to protect themselves in the event of a rape or some sort of assault. Now, what I mean going beyond the bounds, they agree to something and the person does something else, which then the prostitute constitutes or believes to be some form of rape or assault. How do you go to the police and say, this is the guy I want to press charges against? How, from a procedural standpoint, because I would assume, I don't know, but I would assume that most sex workers do not get the real name, address, or cell phone number of the individual who is their client. So while the law might not disfavor prostitution, right, assuming it's legalized, how do they go and press charges? How do they go and say, this person raped me? Now, I understand that there are circumstances where you might know, but how would they do that? What would they do? They'd call the okay, police and, and say, And you're referring raped. to street-based uh, folks as opposed to people working in a taxed or regulated indoor environment, correct? Well, I wasn't, but, you know, you make that point because the street worker isn't going to have the same protection, right? There's not going to be cameras in the facility, et cetera. So how, how does the law protect them? Because if they get raped, there's no recourse to the person that raped them because they don't know who they are. Okay. Well, uh, most street-based sex workers that um, I've come in contact with have safety measures in place. They tend to work in groups because uh, the sexual labor is often performed in somebody's vehicle, they, there's the information that's tied to the vehicle. Um, they work in, in groups that watch out for each other. Um, you know, they are able to take notice, hopefully in a better lit place, um, you know, and with a little bit more time uh, where they're not, uh, you know, trying not to get apprehended by law enforcement they would be able to take notice of a person's features. Um, they might even ask for a driver's license just to take a look at their name or whatever name is presented to them in a driver's license. So it's not, it's not as though they're just out there, you know, not, 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 not taking steps to ensure their safety. Let me ask you this, and you don't have to agree, and I, I think I know where you'll end up with this, but... If if I were or someone were to look for a prostitute and somebody asked me for my driver's license, 
I personally would be absolutely resistant to a street prostitute looking at my driver's license, but might think twice about an establishment asking for my driver's license. Do you see that? I mean, would you agree with that? No. What would be the reasons for that? Why would, well, what do you mean? Why would I feel uncomfortable giving a street prostitute my driver's license? Right. Or just showing it to her. Why would you? Well, that person In a decriminalized has, environment, why would you? Right. In a decriminalized environment, that, that person, I don't know where they've come from, right? I wouldn't. Look, how many people look on Amazon to see the reviews of a product before they buy it? They want to make sure that what they're getting is not uh, a scam or a fake. So if I'm going to give my license to somebody that's not from an established company, don't I run a risk of not knowing who they are? Like when somebody comes to my house to service my, my boiler from you know the public service company, I want to see their identification. I know they work with an established agency. I'd be willing to let them in the house, but somebody who comes up and says, I'm here to look at your boiler, I'm not going to be so willing. So, you know, do you think that legalizing it and then giving um, prostitutes the ability to, to go to law enforcement and say, help me, we have a situation, and then the law enforcement you know, officer says, well, who is the individual? Do you think that there's more of a chance that somebody would be willing to give up their information to an establishment versus a street prostitute? But your, your position I, you know, is I'm no. I'm trying to wrap my head around that. And it sounds to me that if I, – I, I don't know how, you, how, how I would square not showing somebody my driver's license but then trusting them with my private parts. I mean, you know, the the – the other part of that would be uh, a, a sex worker can just flat out refuse to engage with a person that won't show them a driver's license. I, I don't know. I don't know who would who would go and, and seek the services of a street-based sex worker and then not show them a driver's license. I mean, all you're doing is showing it to them. You're not giving it to them. Mm. Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know how that okay. works. That's, that's one part of – that's one aspect of sex work that I'm – pretty in the dark about. I don't know how that, how that works. Right, right. Uh, now, you know, do you see that the majority of sex workers are looking for legalization? I mean, I would say that that seems to me that they would, they would most likely be. But getting back to the point I made at the beginning of the show, surprised that nobody wants to come on and, and you know, express their position. Do you believe that the majority of sex workers are looking for legalization? I think the majority of sex workers are looking for full decriminalization. Okay, okay. And what can they do about it? I mean, isn't it going to take people like you as their advocate? And, it, you know, isn't there strength in numbers? How does the sex working community, right? Because look at the porn industry, for example, the very powerful industry. You know, but they've, they've grouped together. There's almost a lot of, of legitimacy to it now. Um, versus what it was in the 1950s and 60s. But they've gathered together and there's strength in numbers. How do you do that with sex workers? How do you get them to come together, seek legalization? Well, I believe that there, just about every major city in the U.S. and just about uh, every country in the world has some kind of 
collective, uh, sex workers collective, uh, where sex workers themselves are coming together and figuring out how to keep themselves safe from disease and safe from harm uh, and how to watch out for each other. So I, I, as, as far as sex workers uh, in their own movement, I think that they've already they've been leading their own movement. Um, and I think that they're increasingly becoming more organized. They are already fairly organized. I mean, right now uh, the International AIDS Conference is taking place in Melbourne, Australia. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, there's a number of sex worker organizations, uh, predominantly the Scarlet Alliance, which is um, the Australian, the biggest Australian um, sex worker advocate group. Um, it has a, a pretty, a very strong presence at the conference. Um, so I, you know, it, it's, it's sure it's going to take allies. I think that this is a very long, drawn out. Uh, war that's going to be fought with regard to the rights of sex workers um, to a safe and healthy workplace and, you know, be free of harassment um, and harm. Right. I think that, you know, it's, it, there, there's a great, there's an increasing number of allies, me, for example, um, to the sex worker movement. And it's up to them to decide whether they want allies helping them uh, and, they're pretty good about keeping things on their own terms. They're not looking necessarily for, you know, a, a big voice to come and, and swoop them all into legitimacy or, you know, speak on their behalf. Right. So, uh, you know, we have a caller. Uh, if you want to bear with me for a second, let's see if this caller has a question. Hi, caller. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hi, Peter. My name is Tanea, and I'm calling from Florida. Uh, what's your question? Um, well, it's it's not necessarily a question. Um, I've been trying to I'm trying to add to the dialogue here um, as far as the organizations and whatnot. And one thing that that, in my opinion, is really missing is services for the children of sex workers. We all want to talk about criminalization and the effect that it has on women. But one thing that we don't often recognize is the effect that it has on a child. We have many children that are being orphaned right now, removed from otherwise loving homes and put into things like foster care. So I think that one of the organizations that, that you know, really is, is missing that we need right now is services for the children. When we incarcerate women, we victimize children. When we... Uh, when we remove them and put them into foster care, we're basically creating a pipeline, and studies show this, that funnel these children right into foster care. Uh, from foster care, it goes right into prisons. So there's a lot of services that are necessary right now that the children really aren't getting. So right. when we have this dialogue, don't forget the kids. No, it's a good point. It's a good point. I mean, this is it's different, but uh, it can almost be equated to the story that, that we talked about earlier in the week with a woman who was a single mother working at McDonald's, having no place to bring her nine-year-old daughter, um, and left her at a playground, which was less than a mile away, gave her a cell phone, and believed that the girl was safe, but someone in the park had said to the girl, where's your mother? She said, at work. And then they went and arrested the mother and, and separated the daughter from the mother. 
And that clearly, in my opinion, is not in the best interest of the child. So you make a very good point about the children, because I think you're right. I think that the discussion about uh, legalization or decriminalization of it, I think it overlooks the, the family members. So I think it's a very, very good point. I'm so a sex worker myself, and I've, uh, I've personally seen it happen where the situation, and I'm not alone, there have even been big names that we all know across the country, like Jenna Jameson, who mm-hmm. lost custody of her two twin boys uh, to Tito Ortiz, her husband, who had been arrested for domestic violence, uh, had you know positive drug tests and things like this, but custody was awarded to this person with violent history because she was a sex worker. Uh, in my situation, I also lost custody to a man who uh, was twice convicted for domestic violence and abducted my children and took them across state lines. So it's, it's really, really difficult. You know, the, the system is set up to discriminate against us. In my particular case, not only did they discriminate against me because I was a sex worker, and at that time it was in the past because, you know, I had opened a restaurant and prepared a home to bring these children back home to. You know, obviously I understood that in a divorce court that I was never going to win being a sex worker. So I stopped, opened a restaurant the entire year. It was successful. They went out of their way to set everything up in a way to make me look bad and to ignore all of the father's issues. And they said that it wasn't because I was a sex worker, but really it is. Mm -hmm. It, It really is. So, I think that the dialogue needs to stop being just about horse because when we think that criminalization only punishes the filthy horse, we're happy with that. We don't care about horse. If you look, if you watch television today, we are one of the last social groups that it is still okay and permissible to discriminate against and stigmatize. If you watch My Name is Earl or Family Guy or any of these shows, whores are constantly shot and robbed and made fun of, and and that's okay because they're dehumanized. When we see murders where prostitutes are involved, it's called an NHI, no humans involved. So naturally when, you know, someone comes up into a divorce court or a family court or CPS gets involved, these people are all programmed, too, to view us as no humans involved. So, of course, they're going to try to rip these children away. And then we have no idea the torment that they go through because these kids don't know what whore is. These kids know what mom is. And when right. you take mom away from a child, you're creating a bigger problem later on. Thanks no, for that's, taking the call. That's a very, very good point. Thank you very much. Uh, you get a free mug, so somebody will contact you shortly about that. But thank you. Excellent. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Bye, Janelle. See, Peter, this is why you needed to try a little harder to get a sex worker onto today's program. I am not going to take Um, your punishment lightly. (laughs) Uh, But she makes a very good point, which we did not discuss, the fact that there are children involved and the fact that, uh, you know, there's an even better argument for the legalization of it because forgetting the safety of the individual um, the children would have she, – she would have rights um, and protect her children. So because I do think, quite frankly, that uh, with respect to parenting, the rights of a parent should be the rights of a parent regardless of the profession unless you're putting your child at harm. If your child is at harm or there's some um, reason why it's not in the best interest of the child, 
then they should remain your child. So I think that she made a very, very good point. Now, let me ask you, um, before we wrap up, you, you mentioned the fact you're advocating on people's behalf and, and people like you can help sex workers. Do you reach out to them and give them contact information and allow them to contact you for assistance? Yeah, I do. All right, so how would somebody listening to today's show, how would they get in contact with you if they want to work with you and, and, and help you on, on your, uh, you know, your, your crusade? <laughs> um, well, my email address is uh, efernandezkimmel at gmail.com. I know it's a really long name, but it's the one I was given. Um, that would be a way to contact me. That would be the best way to contact me. All right, good. Um, and I, I wanted to make one last point. Uh, sure. Well, because I feel that this whole street versus indoor thing is is, is not not settled. Um, in 2012, when hearings were going on in D.C. Council um, for and against uh, making prostitution-free zones a permanent zone, as opposed to 21 days as it currently stands, um, one among the many people that testified, or the many organizations or agencies that testified against it um, were the D.C. Attorney General's office, who told the D.C. Council, we're your attorney, please don't make us have to defend this permanent prostitution-free zone in court um, because we find it indefensible. And uh, Metropolitan Police Department uh, Assistant Chief Peter Newsham, um, who has been working in D.C. as he's worked in D.C. as a beat cop for decades um, and is now an assistant chief. Um, so he has seen the, the shift in... Uh, street-based sex work in the district and he told D.C. council members that when it comes to the greater problem, if you want to call it that, it's a, I think it's an indicator of, of things not necessarily all going well for everybody, um, but the, the problem of street-based uh, prostitution, they will not be able to arrest their way out of it. Those were his words. Right, right. All right, so well, listen. I think that, you know, there's different ways of dealing with the problem. If it's a public health issue, deal with it that way. If it's a sanitation issue, deal with it that way. Um, if it's a mental health services issue, deal with it that way. Um, but I don't think that you, have to, that you should punish people for doing what they feel that they need to do to survive. Right, right. Well, good point. All right, Elizabeth, I want to thank you very, very much for being on today. It was a very good discussion. Uh, I, I'm sure that our listeners appreciate topics like this. So I'd like to thank you again for being on. My pleasure. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. So we just spoke with a, uh, Elizabeth Fernandez-Kimmel and uh, just want to summarize the discussion today. Obviously, we're talking about the decriminalization or legalization of prostitution. And we talked about the history of it. We talked about uh, the pros and cons in particular uh, safety for women, the spread of sexually transmitted diseases, and the moral issue. Um, you know, one point that I made that I still think is a good point, not simply because I made it, because there are times I make points that I, I go back and I say that was a stupid point. But in this case, I really think that if you want to look at legalizing an industry, 
gambling, drugs, sex, whatever it might be. I think it's got to fit into the context of our business society, of our economic structure, of, of the capitalist market, whether you like it or not, that's the country we live in. And if you're talking about protection for people, because you know our, our caller made an excellent point about the children. I, I, whether you feel that sex work is right, wrong, immoral, whatever, she made an excellent point. And I really, I, I feel for those individuals who are moms who lose their kids simply because of their profession versus being a bad parent. And so that's a, that's a tragedy, right? And And so if you want to legalize it and give sex workers protection, why not make it a structured industry? Go back to my point about the marijuana in Colorado. They didn't just say, all right, everybody, let's bring everybody on up from, you know, Mexico who was illegally transporting drugs and let's let them have a direct route into Colorado and they can sell on the street corners. That's not how it was. You know, it was set up with, you need to get a permit. You need to be a business. So why not do that? If you want to legalize uh, prostitution, why not do it that way? Doesn't it protect the sex worker? Doesn't it protect their family and children? Doesn't it protect them from, or, you know, you're going to pick on words, but doesn't it give them greater protection against sexual violence, against people who are going to harm them? Because you're in a facility. The point that we were talking about earlier with the license, I have never hired a prostitute. I never will, simply because that's my own belief, my own, you know, I'm, it's just my, my, my moral view. And, and, you know, obviously everybody's entitled to their own opinion. That doesn't mean that I don't think that sex workers should have legal rights. But in my world, you know, I would never give my license to someone that doesn't have an established business. And forgetting the profession, it doesn't make a difference if you're the plumber that I was using as a, an example or a sex worker on the street. I'm not going to give you my information until I know that you are legitimized, that, that you are from a legitimate company. I'm not going to let the you know, public service guy in who doesn't have a public service uniform on to check my boiler. I want to know that these people are affiliated with something. So I can't see anybody giving a, a street prostitute their information. Here, by the way, here's my social security number. But I can see that it being a requirement at a legalized uh, facility where there is management. So you know, that's my point with that. I think that whether you're for it or against it, if the plan is to legalize it or if the approach is let's try to get it legalized because we have rights too, and I do think that that's a fair thing to say, I think that everyone has rights. They're guaranteed to us under the Constitution of the United States. And simply because you choose to be in a profession that is frowned upon by many, you know, lawyer is a frowned upon profession as well. Most people hate lawyers. But we're all entitled to rights. We're all entitled to human rights. We're all entitled to civil rights. We're all entitled to the protections guaranteed to us under the Constitution as citizens of the United States. And therefore, I do think that there should be laws that protect people in the, in the sex work industry. Again, regardless of your moral values. I, I would not hire a prostitute. I would not want any of my children to become a sex worker. Does that mean that I don't think that they should be protected? Absolutely not. You should have protection. 
there should be laws that protect you because you are people. So that's just my take on it. I really do feel strongly about the fact that, and, and perhaps it's just become because I come from a business background and, and my business perspective, if you want to take something and make it a legalized and legitimate profession, then do it in a way that protects the people by setting up some structure. Um, and I, I look again to the examples of Colorado. I don't know a better example. Here was a drug that was illegal, now made legal, and it was done the right way. And that's why you can go and say crimes dropped by 14 point, you know, whatever I said earlier, 14.6% in Colorado and revenue is up. And, you know, what, what's gone wrong there, whether you like pot or not. And I'm not advocating it one way or the other. I'm just showing the business model. So if you want to legitimize something and you want to um, uh, make it a a real business, then make it a real business all the way around. So I want to thank our caller uh, for her input, and it it really is important for you guys that listen to this show or follow us on our our other social media streams and whatnot. Give us your opinion. Come on. Talk to us. Tell us what you think. Tell us what you want to hear us talk about. That's how we can provide you with better content. So, uh, and don't be afraid, you know, any of the, the individuals that we invited onto the show today, don't be afraid because this isn't a show about, um, the, I'm not Bill O'Reilly. I'm not here to criticize you. I'm not going to point the figure at you and say, you know, you're bad, you're bad. You shouldn't be here. Regardless of what we're talking about, we have had people on from, uh, the church of Satan. We have had people on from the national socialist movement. And quite frankly, as someone who believes that learning is, is really the path to success, you can take bits and pieces from everybody and learn, and, and you can become a better person or business person because of it. So we don't discriminate here, and we don't point the finger. So don't be afraid to call in. Don't be afraid to give us your opinions. Don't be afraid to comment. Don't forget that there will be posted on our YouTube channel a video broadcast of this show, um, and if uh, you feel so inclined, please leave a comment below the video. Reach out to us on Twitter and Facebook and let us know what you think. All right, I want to remind everybody that the show will be on again Monday morning, 10 o'clock Eastern Time. We're going to go over our week in review uh, with my co-host, Bob Hughes, and uh, we'll talk about a number of legal stories that have come up this week, and there'll be links on our blog later on this week, uh, kind of giving you an idea of what the stories are. If you have questions, if you have comments, I'm going to give you a direct number to contact us, which is different from the call-in number for, uh, for this, this program. And that direct number is 973-949-3770. If you have questions or comments about this show, give us a call. I'd be happy to talk to you about it. Um, Also, remember, download the free app on the iTunes store. It's available for iPad and the iPhone. It is completely free. It provides you with access to uh, our streaming shows as well as our video libraries. And uh, my favorite feature is the the attorney feature. It allows you to ask free of charge, and really free of charge, no in-app purchases, no nothing. Um, Ask your question. Send it directly to an attorney who will respond back to you. You're getting an answer from a licensed attorney, not a paralegal. You don't need to search the Internet and hope that the information you found 
is legitimate. So, um, you know, take advantage of it. It's free. Go to the App Store, type in our, our law office name, Law Office Peter Lamont. You'll find the app, download it, and ask your questions. There's also statute of limitations and other things. So I'd like to thank everybody for uh, joining me today. Thank you for uh, listening live and for all those people who will download this in the next few days. I appreciate it. appreciate um, you know, your support and feedback and comments. We do this as a public service to help people get a better handle on understanding the law because I think it's important for you to understand your rights, to protect your rights, and, and you know, understand your obligations. So thank you all for joining me. We'll see you on Monday. Have a great weekend, and remember that there's power in understanding the law.